Thank y'all for tuning in to another episode of the Bukhari Sellers Podcast. I know you missed us last week. Uh, we were on our vacation. After about 22 episodes, we we take a quick one-week vacation, but we're back now. Uh, today, we'll be interviewing my brother, Gary Chambers. It's bigger than me, Gary Chambers' new foundation. I can't wait to help get this thing off the ground and support it. But before we get to Gary, I have to talk about what was apparently last week's question of the week. It's a silly question, but here we are. Is America racist? In case you missed it, my senator from South Carolina, Senator Tim Scott, stated in response to President Biden's joint address to Congress last week that America wasn't racist. Here's the clip. America is not a racist country. And the following morning, Vice President Harris made a similar point. And while much better than Senator Scott's response, she echoed a similar sentiment that America wasn't a racist country. Well, first of all, no, I don't think America is a racist country, but we also do have to speak truth about the history of racism in our country and its, and its existence today. And I, I applaud the president for always having the ability and the courage, frankly, to speak the truth about it. He spoke what we know from the intelligence community. One of the greatest threats to our national security is domestic terrorism manifested by white supremacists. And so these are issues that we must confront. And it doesn't, it does not help to heal our country, to unify us as a people, to ignore the realities of that. And the idea is that we want to unify the country, but not without um, speaking truth and, and requiring accountability as appropriate. And then my congressman, Jim Clyburn, told CNN, quote, we should stop arguing about whether or not it's a racist country. It is not because, according to Congressman Clyburn, a racist country would never elect Barack Obama president or Kamala Harris vice president. (sighs) I know all three of them personally, and I know that privately, if you asked each of them the same question, they'd say what all black people know to be true. And that's that the answer to the question is yes. The question is, why wouldn't they just say what we ought to know know to be true? And that answer is politics. For Tim Scott, he's the face of the Republican Party on all issues of race. He also has to face a primary in South Carolina and a base of voters that are all in on Trump. So, of course, he's not. He's not going to publicly go against the party line. And if they were honest about racism, they'd have to answer the question, of what they plan to do about it. And we know that they have no answer. You can't offend the racists when you need some of them to win. But Democrats have a messaging problem. Their problem isn't a Tim Scott problem. It's purely messaging. Because no one is saying every American or white American is racist. We're not saying this country is irredeemable. We're acknowledging that this is a country whose founding was rooted in racism and has been fueled by white supremacy since its inception. And the systems that said racism has given rise to continue to harm black and brown people, which will require that the federal government we've elected Democrats to run actually do things to fix said racism. We bend ourselves into pretzels, fighting systemic racism on the one hand, or at least saying that we will, and then saying the country itself isn't racist. That dog won't hunt. Let's make this one easy for Democrats. When you're asked the question, The answer is yes. And the bigger question is, what are you prepared to do about it? The fact that Democrats were playing on turf that was created by Senator Scott in the first place tells you how badly Democrats are doing on race because they're trying not to offend white independents and some one white moderate Democrats. 
who even in the aftermath of the Trump years and a country on fire because its police keep killing black men, still can't be told the truth about race. This is a big tent problem and we've got to fix it ASAP because the voters that delivered for you in 2020 don't want to hear Democrats repeating talking points from Senator Scott. Democrats, we've got to do better. Let's lean into what we know to be true and let's call a spade a spade and do the work we need to fix the racist shit we all see every day in this country. Your political lives depend on it. Or black voters, especially younger ones, will sit home in 2022 and 2024. And that's not a threat. That's a promise. And that's that on that. Now on to my episode with my brother, Gary Chambers. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Man, welcome to the Bakari Sellers Podcast. We got my good friend now, Gary Chambers. I had an opportunity to hang out with him just recently down in Baton Rouge in New Orleans on the streets. What's going on, my brother? How are you? What's up, brother? How are you? Good to be with you. Man, look, Gary, I I, I need you to explain something to me. I, I, didn't, I did not understand until I was there. You are so well known and appreciated by progressives, particularly white progressives. Explain to me how that occurred. What about your message, your presence, your energy? What you think? What do you think it is that helps you build this platform? Because a lot of people in our generation, they just real good on social media, but it doesn't translate to the streets. You've managed to translate to the streets. I don't know how it happened per se, as much as I think that people can connect with what they feel is authentic. Right. Um, and uh, we spent a lot of times a lot of time on the streets and on the ground connecting with people. And I've been kind of unapologetically progressive. I think people in Louisiana specifically have felt like that's not possible for somebody to be uh, pushing these ideas and concepts in the deep South. And I think people kind of got charged up about that. And, you know, for whatever reason, they rock with us. Uh, and, you know, the viral moment with Connie uh, is like the greatest icebreaker ever, right? Uh, <laughs> We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that in a minute. We're going to get to that in a minute. But yeah. <laughs> because everybody's seen it, it, it makes the conversations that I have with people easier uh, than if somebody walks up to somebody kind of cold turkey with their whole political stump speech. People have kind of seen my advocacy through the years. And I think that's what you see people responding to more than anything. 
Talk about that advocacy through the years, because usually at the top of every show, we walk people through the arc of the career of the person that were, of our guest. So talk to me about what happened in your life that led you to decide that your vocation would be advocacy and fighting for communities in Baton Rouge and across Louisiana. You know, I was really just a small business owner. Uh, I've been in business nine years this year. I own a company called Rouge Collection, which is a media platform here uh, in Baton Rouge. And uh, there was a brother named Lamar Johnson who in 2015 uh, was pulled over by the police in Baker, which is a little town in Baton Rouge in, in East Baton Rouge Parish. And to make a long story short, a few weeks before Sandra Bland, they said he hung himself in Parish Prison. Um, and his family couldn't get any answers for it. And much like many people around the country, I had already been impacted by Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin and all of those things. And so when something happened in my neighborhood, right, in my community, and the family reached out, I wrote a column about it and 40,000 people read it. Um, And then that kind of told me, like, at that point in my company, that was like uh, the most read article that we had put put out. And so it showed me this is something people really cared about. And follow that up a few months later, our DA here tried to open a misdemeanor jail, um, which was basically like a debtor's prison. They were bringing in people who um, like had bench bullshit. warrants and traffic yeah. violations. And my logic was, if you can't handle uh, parish prison, then you certainly can't handle a misdemeanor jail, right? And so I wrote about it like five or six times, showed up at a council meeting. That was my first city council meeting. Uh, several dozen other young black men showed up. We spoke about it. We killed it. And I never stopped showing up. You know, um, it was really like accidental for me. Like I read in the newspaper that I was an activist. Right. Uh, <laughs> You're like, Wait a minute, that's, what I, I, that's what they call this. This is what this word yeah, is. I was like, I was just a concerned <laughs> citizen, you know, um, and I don't think and I'm not going to say I don't think anybody because there are people who like seek this. But. Uh, once you really realize the, the level of scrutiny you get with activism and advocacy and the work that goes into it, the opportunities that you miss as a result of it, I don't think as many people would would crave uh, the authenticity of what this is. You know, people, uh, I don't think to your point, I don't think people get the calls that you get or see the work that you do that that's never written about this, never talked about. But you're just helping somebody connect the dot because you become this kind of facilitator between yourself and government or service or whatever it may be, trying to not let people down. Do you feel that emotional weight? All the time, man. All the time. You know, um, there are some situations that I know the minute that I hear the story that there's not much I can do to change the outcome for people, Mm -hmm. uh, but still feel an obligation to try to help them get whatever level of clarity they can get uh, from government. And you do become kind of like a conduit between the people and the government, right? Because eventually you're not just antagonizing people. Hopefully if you've been effective at this work, you help elect people, right? And when you help elect these people, then you've got a relationship with the power broker there. And and even when you've got a relationship with them, it doesn't make it easy, right? Because there's a tough job, you know, to be uh, the person that is the executive of a city or the chief of police or the governor or whatever. And then to have to, navigate through the laws and the rules and still try to give people justice at the same time. Right. And then the role of advocacy is to try to make sense of it all uh, on both sides that like, you know, yeah, you guys can probably go a little further in the government. and Then we have to understand our role in continuing to be active. One of the struggles I've probably had the most is 
getting people to like stay charged up beyond yeah. inflection moments, right? Beyond, you know, what we're seeing right now in the country with uh, Dante Wright, right? Uh, that we've got to be active beyond these tragedies in order to see the wholesale change that we want to see happen in these systems and structures. People in Baton Rouge have known you for some time, but you became a household name. We just talked about this by coming for your local school board member, Connie, who we've not heard from since you dragged her. We're going to play that clip right here. So I had intended to get up here and talk about how racist Robert E. Lee was, but I'm going to talk about you, Connie, sitting over there shopping while we're talking about Robert E. Lee. This is a picture of you shopping while we're talking about racism and history in this country. Only white members of this board got up while we were up here talking, too, because you don't give a damn. And it's clear. But I'm going to tell you what the slaves, my ancestors, said about Robert E. Lee, since you don't know history, sister. Let me tell you that they said when he got the plantation, after he got off the field where 27,000 people died at Gettysburg, Connie, Robert E. Lee was a brutal slave master. Not only did when he whooped the slaves, he said, lay it on them hard. After he said, lay it on them hard, he said, put brine on them, sort of burn them. That's what Robert E. Lee did. And you set your arrogant self in here and sit on there shopping while the pain and the hurt of the people of this community is on display. Because you don't give a damn and you should resign. Uh, why'd you come for Connie like that? And did she ever what, where is Connie? Like what what <laughs> t- talk to me about y'all cool now? I mean, what what's going on? So we 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 were cool before. <laughs> we were cool before. Um Connie's still on the school board. Uh, this is her last term. Um, and so, you know, she's going to probably ride that thing out. Elections are next year. I'm sure that there'll be people uh, amped up to run to replace her. Uh, you know, I, I really just I didn't even recognize she was shopping a friend of mine that, that came to school board meeting with me. Uh, you know, when your first school board meeting, she was looking around, watching everything and saying, Gary, is that lady shopping? And, you know, it just really pissed me off. You know, uh, and I tried to get the reporter to take a picture of it. And she had like this long lens on her camera, so she couldn't do it. And so I just recorded it because I know Connie lies. And when I got up to talk, what you see is kind of what you get. And that, the truth is, if you talk to people in Baton Rouge, like, this is not like a a new thing for me, you know? I have- But you are uh, introvert, though. But you're introvert, though. No, no doubt. No doubt. I am. <laughs> I am. Uh, you know, I, but but it 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 just- there comes a time when like you're called to speak on things. Right. And, and that's kind of my thing. And so, you know, I don't think Connie likes me much anymore. You know, uh, we were cool before all of this, but you know, I, I, and I honestly haven't seen her uh, because I haven't been to many school board meetings since then. It kind of is a whole thing now. So I, I, I try not to make the people nervous when I walk in the room, you know, when I come to meetings, whether it's school board or city council meetings, uh, certain people who work for the government are always like, you're not here to talk on my item, are you? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm with them. Like, look, what, what we got to figure out, we got to figure out what Chambers, what that Chambers boy back there trying to. Yeah, trying let's, to. let's talk before the beat. <laughs> so I want to zoom out just a little bit um, and talk broadly about activism and police reform, because last summer we saw everyone responding to George Floyd's murder. We had a full summer of protests and donations galore, but to date, Only one state has passed any comprehensive police reform, and that's Maryland. Very few cities have reduced their budgets. Federal police reform is stuck. How are folks in the activist community responding, in your view, to what, you know, what could be the window closing on getting real state, local, and federal reforms done? 
And what should the game plan be for keeping the pressure up on policymakers to get things done? That's a big question. Uh, I think I think that folks are planning for the long game, right? Uh, how do we uh, elect people in, in our local elections that are going to uh, adopt the policies that we support? Um, I see a lot of people getting uh, charged up around that work. I see people uh, trying to figure out how do you uh, pass incremental reforms, right? If yeah, you can't yeah. get uh, the wholesale stuff and we've seen uh, some people be successful at, you know, some of the small changes. For instance, here we changed the use of force policy for the Baton Rouge Police Department, uh, the body cam policy, and we now have control of our civil service board, uh, which determines whether or not if a cop appeals for their job after the chief fires them, whether they uh, stay fired. And for the first time, uh, probably in the history of the Baton Rouge Police Department, we, the citizens, more so control that board. And several cops' terminations have been upheld uh, in the last year, right? Uh, and those are the stories that don't go viral. Those are the, mm-hmm. that's the change that's not talked about on large scale. But that's what I call the quiet work of justice, right? It, it's the small things that are happening to inch us toward a more just society. But I think in, in the long term that we've got to be, you know, organizing uh, around the bigger issues. We, we talked about it this weekend, redistricting and things of that nature, uh, because that helps us have an electoral map that gives us the potential uh, yeah. for some of these policies to be changed. And, and it's fair and just. And, and, and that's how we fix it, right? Like, like we can't, the reason they call it a system, right, is because like everything is interconnected and intertwined with each other. And if you only deal with one aspect of it, then you're not going to get uh, the change that you're looking for long term. And so uh, hopefully, you know, specifically here in Louisiana, we can get uh, a more just, a more fair map uh, for the next 10 years, which will give us uh, the ability to compete. We have a Democrat as governor, even though Republicans control the House and the Senate uh, in the legislature. And because we have a Democrat as governor, hopefully uh, he will veto any map that is not uh, what it needs to be. And if not, hopefully our federal partners are going to uh, step in and make sure that we have just maps. That's fair enough. Let's talk about your recent run for office. For folks who don't know, you were recently a candidate for the 2nd Congressional District of Louisiana. First, talk to our listeners about the district, where it is, who lives there, and what the needs are. I learned a lot about that district, Cancer Alley, to be specific. And why did you decide to run, Gary? Um, you know, I say that the people called me to this fight, and I mean that. I wasn't looking at uh, running for this race. Uh, when Cedric Richmond took the job with Joe Biden, uh, I was more so like, you know, when people first reached out, I sent them the list of the people who were considering it. Um, and they said, nah, you should really consider it. Uh, I did. I was like, look, here's a Nola.com article. <laughs> I was there, you know, um, because I ran for office before and I talked to you about this. We didn't have resources uh, and I just wasn't going to do that again. Uh, so we launched an exploratory committee because so many people uh, said we should do it. Sean King made a post one day and Thousands of people commented, including some pretty influential people who said they wanted to help. Uh, launched an exploratory committee, raised $100,000 in December. We said, let's go for it. Um, ran on a, a very progressive platform. Uh, the cities you see on the wall behind me uh, are many of the cities that make up uh, the second congressional district. And uh, most folks don't know this, but Louisiana ranks 50 in the nation, right? We rank 50 uh, in crime, 50 in opportunity, 50 in environmental quality, 45 in healthcare, 48 in education. And so any list that is negative, uh, we are at the top. And any list that is positive, we are at the bottom. Um, And I'm 35, and I was really just looking at it like, 
you know, uh, we need new leadership and new ideas if we're going to uh, build a comprehensive regional strategy to, in my mind, help this state grow economically because some of the other issues we have at the core of it is we don't have the jobs or uh, the economic stability, the diversity of our economy in order for uh, our state to grow. Talk to me briefly about Cancer Alley in Louisiana, right there in the heart of the second congressional district and how a Black-led environmental justice movement is building around leading a transition away from fossil fuels in Louisiana. Like I just said, you know, we rank 50 in environmental quality and 50 in opportunity, right? So we're married to the oil and gas industry here in Louisiana. Uh, It is uh, what we consider as a state, like the booming uh, aspect of our economy, but it's failing the people of this state and it's killing black folks, specifically uh, marginalizing poor black folks in the river parishes is what we call them here. We don't have counties, we have parishes. And uh, groups like Rise St. James and other organizations have uh, been fighting against like this new Formosa plant that they're trying to open up and saying, look, we don't want another plant in our neighborhood um, because not only do the people who live there get cancer uh, because of what they put in the atmosphere, they're not getting the jobs at these plants either. Right. Um, And so it's like a double slap in the face that, you know, you're going to pollute my community and you're going to give all the jobs at the facility to the people who don't live in my community. Um, And so we end up poor and dying. Um, And so a big part of us in this campaign was to talk about the issues of environmental justice. And I'm glad to say that now both uh, congressional candidates that are remain in the race are further along on. Uh, the policies of the environment than I think either of them ever would have been had we not been in the conversation. Um, And and my uh, lean so heavy in is because I come from a world of advocacy, right? And when I heard those people in those communities in Edgar's and in St. James Parish, it really, it hit me, right? And and I just felt obligated to like just stand up on these principles. Um, and, And I think that we should pay attention to the work that they're doing in those river parishes. Uh, They may be a small group of people, but uh, they're starting to pack a bigger punch. Talk to me. You talked about uh, Troy Carter and and Karen Carter-Peterson. Why did you decide to endorse Karen? Because of the two candidates, Karen is the most progressive. Uh, She's the candidate who is willing to commit to fight for uh, the policies that align most with me. Um, And the truth is, I wasn't going to endorse anybody, but I woke up pissed off the Thursday after the election. Uh, because there were so many people who, you know, patted me on the back and said how good we did, uh, but did very little to help us, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't want to, specifically progressive organizations, right? Uh, There were a lot of progressive organizations, progressive members of Congress that just chose to either opt out or uh, go with Karen. We were more progressive than Karen on some policies, right? And from that frustration, what I said was, I didn't want to end up, on April 25th, waking up and Karen fell 1,500 votes short because I didn't do anything to help her. Um, no, that's strong. And so, that's humble and strong on your part. Well, I don't, I don't want to be a hypocrite, you know? Like, like, how can I be mad at others for not stepping up for me and then when I'm given the opportunity to step up, I can't put my ego on the shelf? It hasn't been easy, right? Like, oh, I know. Uh, because uh, losing does not feel good, right? I know that too. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I also... I believe in the stuff that I'm out here pushing, you know, like it, it, when I say it's bigger than me, it really is. You know, each of us have like our time on the clock. Right. And, and with my time on the clock, I'm not just going to sit there and lick my wounds. You know, I'm going to stay going to work and pushing these issues 
and showing people specifically in the progressive movement, right, that if we want to see our ideas become reality, we can't like pick up our toys and go home when things don't go our way. Uh, we've got to find a way to build coalitions, build bridges uh, and work with people. Um, and Karen, to me, was the, big, the, the most authentic partner in the work for me. Well, you know, I'm with you in whatever race you decide to run. But but in now in essentially running against Troy Carter and essentially Cedric Richmond the first time and then endorsing Karen Carter, you're running up against the establishment wing of the Democratic Party. For people who may not understand the local dynamics, talk about what it's like to be the candidate running against the machine. And how should insurgent candidates navigate an election when they're on the other side of the money, name recognition, and powerful local figures like Congressman Richmond? One is stay connected to the people, right? Uh, what And you saw this in New Orleans, wherever we went, people knew who we were. Uh, I'm not from New Orleans, have not lived there uh, since I was 20. It was fascinating to watch. I've told everybody about that. It was fascinating. And so what what worked is, you know, we didn't run from who we were. We 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 did this thing called backyard conversations, right? And I met with people in their backyards or in small businesses uh three, four nights a week, 20 people at a time because of COVID restrictions. And I did that three nights a week for three months, you know, and connected with people where they were. Um, and I think that you got to be willing to do the hard work when you're going up against the machine. And and listen, you know, <laughs> and you, you joked at the table and said uh, we weren't going to let Karen run out of money, right? Oh yeah, we weren't going to uh, let her. That wasn't going to happen. <laughs> and that money gap uh, definitely made the difference. Okay, uh, we Karen beat us by fifteen hundred votes, but fundraising wise, she beat us by a couple hundred thousand dollars. Correct. Um, and, and so. Uh, I would say to any person who's considering a run, and we still raise good money for uh, an outsider. I raised $540,000. We're proud of the money money. that we raised. And we did that with small dollar contributions. But you're not going to get that chasing the big dollar donors, right? And and the advice I would give to insurgent candidates is don't spend your time trying to be them. Uh, Find out how you can connect with the people who are most likely to support what you support. And those people will give you their resources. Now, it may not be $2,800 checks, uh, but we raised a half a million dollars off $33 contributions, right? I'm proud to say we only had three max out donors, right? Um, that only, is You raised $540,000 and only had three max out donors? Yes, sir. That's fascinating. I mean, that's just, that's unheard of. And to me, it speaks to the potential of what we could do with what I call the people power movement, right? Um, that more runway, you know, you analyze all the things you could have done better, right? But at the end of the day, uh, I'm a man of faith, so God's will was uh, done. These are the two people that are going forward. And I I picked the person that I believe is the best one. But for people who are uh, looking at these races and trying to figure out how do I pick my groove, your groove is being authentically you. uh, And people will buy into that. But if you're trying to be a carbon copy or something else or chasing the machine, they're never going to support you. You know, <laughs> let's let's talk about that for a second, because, you know, you mentioned it earlier. I want to talk about the progressive movement for a second, because I'd imagine you've got mixed feelings about the national movement. They weren't as active as they probably should have been in their support of you. And as we've now seen twice with Senator Sanders presidential run, the progressive movement hits a wall, particularly with black voters north of 40 um, and 
particularly those voters in the South, you know, that's ball game in places like South Carolina. Why do you think that's the case? And what's the progressive movement's homework in the deep South to gain deeper traction and win more races? So in 2019, I was doing everything I could to try to get Bernie Sanders to come to Louisiana, right? Uh, because I believe that if he had come to Louisiana and talked to these people, uh, that he could have won them over. When you talk to, when I talk about Medicare for All, uh, and I talk to the older saints in the Baptist church, uh, I go in and say, Jesus laid hands on the sick and they recovered. And that was Medicare for All in his day. And if it was good for Jesus, it ought to be good for the government, Right. And the deacon is bored and the deacon start, uh-huh, you know, because I speak their language, right? Hey, man, uh, hey, you, I hope they take it. I hope people taking notes out there, but go ahead, and, preach, and, preach. And when I talk about the Green New Deal, right, uh, I speak about the ability to uh, work a job, breathe, breathe clean air and live in the community that you want to live in. But I also talk about Detroit, a city that was married to uh, the auto industry, which is something that everybody who is over 50 remembers how many of their cousins and friends moved north to get jobs with the auto industry. And I talk about the, how that marriage dissolved and left Detroit, which was a city of 3 million people, a city of 700,000 and Louisiana being a state of 4 million people uh, married to the gas industry. Eventually, not, not if, but when the, the oil and gas industry dies, what happens to our economy, right? What happens to our state's population? And that resonates. But it's because I went in their communities and I mm -hmm. talked to them. Right. Yeah. Um, the progressive movement is failing to consider black voters in a real way and the deep south. And proof of that is uh, you had a firebrand progressive candidate running for office in the state that ranks 50th in the nation. Right. 50 in environmental quality, 45 in health care. And not a single member of Congress in the progressive movement has touched their foot to this soil. Uh, Oh, they you have. They have. They just not coming for the progressive candidate. Nah, nah, they have not come here. Oh, you they, mean the progressive. The, oh, you're right. I was thinking about Congressman Clyburn and others. You mean the progressive no, 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 wing. No. I'm talking uh, about the progressive members of Congress. Oh, right? yeah, I got you. Um, I got those, you. I hear you. Those who are pushing this progressive agenda, you're not going to come true. to the place where it's the worst. Right. Yeah, um, it, 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 it is. It is to some degree hypocrisy. And I'm going to call it out. Right. Uh, and challenge them to be better. And and. Uh, but two, I'm going to organize around a progressive agenda down here in the Deep South because, you know, you're never going to elect a progressive president without the Deep South. It's not going to happen. I, they tried to do it twice and it didn't work. Let me ask you this, because one of the unique things about Gary Chambers is this. I think you break the mold because in my experience outside of you and Nina and uh, now Jamal Bowman and Ayanna Presley, the national progressive elective voices aren't voices like yours. They're rarely, if ever, Southern. They're even more rarely Black men. They rarely are community voices that come with real authenticity. Why is that? And why isn't the Progressive Project in the Deep South finding a Gary in every community across the Deep South and getting behind them and supporting them? Don't you think that would help us everywhere from South Carolina to Louisiana? I do. I, I think it's still just new. You know, I think that there's still some newness to to this movement, though, though some of the ideology may uh, not be new. This is a new movement uh, in this country over the last four or five years. And I think we're kind of finding our footing in, in what is what will and what won't work. Um, I hope and, and, and this is one of the things that uh, I'm going to be pushing on is I hope that people look at what we did and see that there's a real opportunity in the South. Uh, the same way people are analyzing what Stacey Abrams did in Georgia 
uh, and seeing the South as uh, potentially flippable, right? Um, it's going to take resources. It's going to take an investment in time, right? And it's going to take grassroots organizing, connecting with people where they are. You know, you got to give Joe Biden props to uh, the fact that he knew he needed to touch Jim Clyburn in South Carolina and Cedric Richmond in Louisiana, right? Uh, because they were going to be pivotal for him to be able to turn out the black vote in the deep South. He had an older uh, uh, a person from the electorate and a younger, and he was able to penetrate in that way. And, and that's the only way you're going to do it. You're going to have to get people that the people trust with you. And, and what has not worked for the progressives is they're not coming here tapping into the people that the people trust here. They're coming here with their ideology, without relationship. And that don't work down here. <laughs> no, it don't. You got to build that trust. Look, my last question for you. I think I know a little bit of this answer. But what's next for Gary Chambers? So I'm going to launch an organization at the end of the month. We talked about that um, and do some serious work around uh, building, uh, building out Louisiana in the deep south for uh, progressives and supporting people uh, that want to run for office. Um, and then uh, I ain't scared to run. So, you know, we're going to run again at some point. Just don't know what for. I'm going to let the people help me decide what we do next, though. Well, look, put me down as one of your max out checks. You done went from three to four. So, all right, they, I'll take they, you. They, hey, I got you, brother. You know, I love you, man. I'm a phone call away. I hope you text me between now and the election day if I can do anything for you guys or do anything more. Ladies and gentlemen, Gary Chambers on the Bakari Sellers podcast. Thank you, my brother. Thank you, brother. Love you too. Bees, man. Before I let you go, I wanted to talk about how I've spent the last few weeks while we've taken a break from the show. I've spent time in Washington with the Floyd, Crutcher, and other families who've lost loved ones at the hands of police violence. I've also been in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, fighting the local law enforcement establishment there for justice for the family of Andrew Brown. Now more than ever before, I'm committed to not only seeing systemic changes in policing policy in Washington, but also in state and local government. We talk a lot about the Department of Justice and federal investigations into local police departments in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And while that's all important, the body of law regulating police is state and local. And I'm here to tell you all that police unions and the politicians that support them, both the Republicans and Democrats, have stacked the decks against us. And we've got to be committed to unstacking it. What does that look like? Everything from use of force policies that we actually write instead of the way they're written now, which is by consultants paid by police to allow the police to do what they want, to fair laws around when law enforcement is forced to make public body camera and dash cam footage where there's an officer-involved shooting. Chances are you live in a state where police officers have their own Bill of Rights that make it harder to investigate them when they're wrong. And you'll likely have an elected prosecutor, judge, and even coroner where you live that is endorsed by law enforcement. And that is many times enough that they will not hold an officer accountable for killing someone. And you probably live in a city where the police department has a union contract that shields officers from accountability, puts them on paid leave when they kill you, and when they're off the hook for killing you, taxpayers pay the tab on civil suits, and these officers ultimately get their jobs back. This is our generation's work, bringing these issues to light and changing the laws that keep these cops shielded from accountability and walking the streets where we live. And that's that on that. We'll see you all on Thursday. Have a great evening. Thank you.